0: You know, the title of this uh, talk, at least in the outside door, is Discernment in the Age of Medical Myths. But that was a slight uh, alteration. The title is, as you read it, Medical Myths That Can Kill You. I suspect that was probably a little bit too uh, exciting, so they toned it down a little bit. But uh, thank you, gentlemen, for coming to this breakout session. I know you have a choice, and uh, I appreciate your interest. We're going to have a great time this morning. You're going to literally learn things that will save your life. I'm going to talk for a while, and then I'm going to answer all of your questions. So write those questions down as we go. I promise to get to them. Now, you've come here today to learn about discernment. And if you look up the word discernment, what are you you going to find? Well, it says this, the Grace to You online library. It's the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. But I'm going to suggest something that's slightly different. I just want to talk to you a little bit about something that happened to me this week. Uh, My adult son is interested in investing in oil and gas royalties. Uh, You know, oil wells produce oil. And uh, if you own the mineral rights to the land where the oil is being uh, pumped from, you receive a monthly royalty check from the company who's pumping out the oil. So my son receives an offer from a particular company with this particular graph enclosed. It shows the amount of oil that's produced each month, Well, there we go. Monthly production at the top and on the side it has uh, the amount. Okay, Uh, oil is the little green line that you see. Uh, And it looks pretty much as you look at that line that the amount of oil being produced each month is about the same. And that's a good thing, because if you buy an oil royalty, you want the oil well to keep producing oil for a long time. So you can cover what you paid for the royalty and hopefully even make some additional money. But when you look a bit more closely, you notice that the scale on the left is logarithmic. In other words, it's like 1 to 10, and then it just keeps going in increasingly large increments, but in the same amount of space. And the reality is that if you look at it more carefully, what looks like only a slight decrease in that green line with time is in reality a 50% decrease in a period of only a few months what my son needed to do was to discern between what was nearly true and what was in reality true. Sure, the oil well is going to produce oil, but the question was, would he make money on the investment? He was going to make money for a few months, but the complete truth was that he was going to lose money in the long run if he invested in that particular oil well, since the monthly production was falling off rather rapidly. So Discernment, according to Charles Spurgeon, and I like this definition, it's not so much knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. So this morning, we're going to look at discernment when it comes to your health. Medical myths. And to believe and act on some of these myths can be harmful to your health, even fatal. These are medical myths that in reality can kill you. So What is a myth? Well, I think we all have a good concept of that. It's a widely held but false belief. Because your life is at stake, you need to be able to discern what's true from what's nearly true, but really false. The right from the almost right. And if you fail to do this, there may be serious and even life-threatening consequences. So we're first going to look at 10 not-so-deadly medical myths that even some doctors believe. These are a group of bits that you don't have to get it right, so to speak, because uh, even if you get the wrong answer, you're still not going to suffer serious health consequences. So here are the 10 not so deadly ones. First of all, we need to drink eight glasses of water each day. How many times have you heard that said? Eight glasses of water each day. The fact there is no medical evidence to suggest that you need that much water. The myth can be traced back to a 1945 recommendation from the National Nutrition Council that a person consume the equivalent of eight glasses or 64 ounces of fluid each day. And over the years, the word fluid was replaced with the word water by some well-meaning but uninformed individual. The reality is that fluid is contained in fruits and vegetables, uh, plus coffee and other liquids, and these count. It doesn't have to be just water. That may reduce your drinking requirements to far less than eight glasses of liquid a day. So, gentlemen, you can put put away those 64-ounce water containers that some folks carry around to make sure they drink all of that water in a day. You can get fluid from other sources as well. It's nearly true that you need eight glasses of water a day, but the truth is that it's eight glasses of fluid. A second myth, you can catch a cold by being cold. Fact. How many times have you heard someone say that they were out in the cold weather all day and this gave them a cold? For years, many people have assumed that it's a state of being cold that causes you to catch a cold. But in this day and age, I think most people are more aware that you catch a cold not from being outside in chilly weather, but from a cold virus. We become infected with cold viruses known as rhinoviruses through physical contact or being in the same space as infected people. This is especially true if the infected person is coughing or sneezing or if we've touched some of the same objects as that person. So on the face of it, it seems fairly obvious that the concept of cold temperatures causing people to catch colds is a myth. That being said, there is a mechanism by which being cold may actually make us more susceptible to coming down with a cold. Cold viruses try to enter the human body via the nose. They usually get trapped in the mucus there. And what happens? Well, the mu- mucus is passed back down through the throat into the body, swallowed and neutralized by the stomach acids. But when we inhale cold air, the nasal passage cools down. This slows the move- movement of mucus. And th- this means that the live rhinoviruses have more opportunities to break through the mucus barrier and into the body. Studies have actually found that cold viruses also thrive better in cold weather because they're less able to survive at normal body temperatures. So, in conclusion, colds are largely due to viruses and not just a consequence of cold weather, but the cold weather myth may not just be an old wives' tale, after all. The truth is that colds come from viruses, but it's also nearly true that being cold leads to a cold. Myth three, cracking your joints can lead to arthritis. I wish I had a nickel for every time I've heard that, okay? Fact, cracking your joints does not cause arthritis, but if you are a compulsive knuckle cracker, you have almost certainly been scolded at some point by a possibly well-meaning but more likely annoyed teacher, colleague, or loved one with the words, don't do that, you'll give yourself arthritis. But contrary to popular belief, cracking your knuckles is unlikely to do so. Now, several studies have investigated the association between the two. They generally report that individuals who crack their joints are at nearly the same risk of getting arthritis as those who have never cracked their joints. So no, cracking your knuckles will not increase your risk of arthritis. It may put some wear and tear on your joints that could cause problems, but probably not arthritis. By the way, if you're interested in what happens in your joints when you hear that crackling sound, you'll be reassured by a study done in 2018. When we crack our knuckles, the researchers explain, we're pulling our joints apart ever so slightly, which causes pressure to decrease in the synovial fluid that lubricates the joints. And when that happens, bubbles form in the fluid, and the variations in pressure cause the the bubbles to rapidly fluctuate in size, and that correlates with a characteristic crackling sound that's that's so pleasing to the cracker, but often less so for the folks around Myth number four, deodorants can cause breast cancer. Fact. Some individuals have suggested that there may be a link between the use of underarm deodorants and the development of breast cancer. The truth, though, is that there is, to quote, little evidence that has been found for this myth. The myth is based on the notion that chemicals from the deodorant affect breast tissue since they are applied to the nearby skin under the arm. But nearly all of the studies that have tested this link have found little evidence to support the claim. The National Cancer Institute says that tradi- additional research would be required to prove that relationship between deodorant use and breast cancer exists since the convincing evidence is not present at, at this time. The truth is that although the chemicals may irritate the breast tissue, they don't lead to the development of cancer. What about the antiperspirants? There is a difference now, right? uh, same same difference. No no evidence. How about eggs are bad for your heart? I know, I didn't eat eggs for years because of that. But fact, ever since the 1970s, there's been a strong focus in health care on the role played by cholesterol and heart disease. Cholesterol is found in deposits called plaques that are found in the coronary arteries of the heart, those with heart disease. And these coronary arteries, as you probably know, carry blood to the heart muscle, and if they're blocked by these cholesterol-containing plaques, that may result in heart attacks and even heart failure. Some years ago, the assumption was made that food high in cholesterol increased the amount of plaque in the coronary arteries, and because eggs are high in cholesterol, you should avoid eggs. The truth, however, is that cholesterol in food doesn't cause your blood level of cholesterol to go up. It's eating food that's high in saturated animal fats that increases your blood cholesterol levels. The almost truth is that food high in cholesterol drives up your blood cholesterol level, but it's the saturated fat and not the cholesterol in the food that causes the problem. The truth is that food high in saturated fat drives up your blood levels of cholesterol. Eggs are not high in saturated fat. One egg gives you only 12% of the recommended amount of saturated fat you should eat each day. On the other hand, an 8-ounce piece, piece of steak gives you about 120% of the recommended daily saturated fat amount. Interestingly, the amount of Cholesterol in a an 8-ounce steak is about the same as in an egg. But an egg has 10 times less saturated fat than the 8-ounce steak. Doctor, a
1: question. Yes. In addition to that, there's an article that came out. The number of eggs you eat every day or every week will affect your cholesterol level, too. I don't know if you
0: read about that or not. Will, will not affect your cholesterol level? It will. Uh, it? Okay. It, they
1: recommended that any person that this is this study, though? You yeah. said so that if you eat like, uh, more than three eggs a
0: week, chances is you could develop a heart disease.
1: So yeah. yeah. Well, that's... So that higher uh,
0: than that. Cer- certainly doesn't agree with the majority of studies. Unless, uh, if you're diabetic, there is some evidence to suggest that uh, eggs may affect. But in majority of you guys, go ahead and have an egg, okay? Uh, actually, eggs are good for you in a number of ways. They're rich in nutrients uh, because of their high cholesterol content. Some experts suggest that we not do more than two to four eggs per week and that individuals, as I was mentioning, with type 2, heart, type 2 diabetes or a history of heart disease should eat fewer eggs. But today, most doctors believe that there is no link between eating lots of eggs and cholesterol imbalance or that an increase of heart problem, risk of heart problems or type 2 diabetes is due to your egg consumption. So I think you probably are okay. Uh, so, interestingly, the, most, uh, the, the main health risk that's posed by eggs is a risk of salmonella infection. So I'll take four eggs over easy. <laughs> yes? back to number one
1: with the water. Can too much water or eight glasses of
0: uh, water cause headaches? Not that I know of. If, you were, if you're drinking a tremendous amount of water, you could drop your serum sodium level and that can cause some issues, uh, just in terms of the uh, fluid balance in your brain. But uh, 64 ounces of water a day, unless you consume it within a period of five minutes, shouldn't, shouldn't cause a problem. Because my son is telling my wife that she gets her because she drinks a ridiculous amount of water each day. Well, that may be more than 64 ounces. Yeah, yeah could be. Yeah. One of those water trucks.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we use only 10% of our brains. Have you heard of that? Yeah. yeah. Fact. Physicians and comedians alike, including Jerry Seinfeld, love to quote this one, okay? It's sometimes even credited to Albert Einstein. But MRI scans, PET scans, and other imaging studies show that there are no inactive areas in the brain. Even when you look at the individual neurons, the cells, there are no inactive nerve cells. Furthermore, metabolic studies of how brain cells process chemicals show no non-functioning areas. This myth probably originated with self-improvement hucksters in the early 1900s, who wanted to convince people that they had not yet reach, reached their full potential. That also does the job with the fact that our other organs run at full tilt. So, uh, gentlemen, you're using 100% of your brains. <laughs> That's the good and the bad news. <laughs> How about reading in dim light ruins your eyesight? My mother told me that many a time. You're going to go blind. <laughs> okay, fact. Researchers have found no evidence that reading in dim light causes permanent eye damage. It can cause eye strain and tempor- temporarily decrease the sharpness of your vision, but this disappears after rest. Now, this is something that we hear all the time around Thanksgiving, including for the pulpit. Eating turkey makes you drowsy fact many doctors and even pastors believe this one but let's look at the facts there's an amino acid in turkey turkey meat called tryptophan it's known to cause drowsiness but the fact is that turkey doesn't contain significantly more tryptophan than does chicken or beef and in fact pork chops contain more tryptophan than turkey the myth that eating turkey causes drowsiness is probably fueled by the fact that turkey is often eaten with a colossal holiday meal and often accompanied by by alcohol okay a large meal, too little sleep, around a holiday, and alcoholic drinks are all things that will make you sleepy. The almost right is that eating turkey will make you drowsy, but the real right is that it's the large meal, too little sleep, and alcohol that go along with the turkey that are the source of the sleepiness problem. This is something that you hear not so infrequently. Cell phones cause brain cancer. Okay? Fact. Okay, let's look at this in a bit more detail. Cell phones became widely used first really eh, starting in the 1990s, but their use has certainly dramatically increased since then. Along with a large and still growing number of cell phone users, the amount of time people spend on their cell phones has also risen sharply in recent years. What do we know about cell phones? Well, they give off a form of energy known as what? Radio frequency waves. So some concerns have been raised about the safety of cell phone use with respect to cancer. Concern focuses on whether cell phones might increase the risk of brain tumors or other tumors in the head and neck area because of that radio frequency. Okay, so first let's look at it. How do cell phones work? Well, cell phones work by what? Sending signals to and receiving signals from nearby cell towers using radio frequency waves. Radio frequency waves are a form of electromagnetic energy that falls between FM radio waves and microwaves. Like FM radio waves, microwaves, visible heat, and uh, light, or visible light and heat, radiofrequency waves are a form of what they call non-ionizing radiation. This means that they don't have enough energy to cause cancer by directly damaging the DNA inside of our cells. These types of waves are different from stronger, known as ionizing type of radiation, such as X-rays, gamma rays, and ultraviolet light, which can break the chemical bonds in DNA and can cause mutations and can cause cancer at very high levels radio frequency waves can actually heat up body tissues but the levels of energy given off by your cell phone are much lower and are not enough to raise temperature in the body so how are people exposed to radio frequency waves well the radio frequency waves from cell phones come from the antenna which is found in the body of the handheld phone the waves are strongest at the antenna and they lose energy quickly as they travel away from the phone now how do you use a phone well typically it's held against the side of the head so your Exposure to the radio frequency waves is going to be greatest in the head and neck area. The tissues closest to the phone receive more energy, and those further away, like your foot, don't get much at all. Now, do cell phones cause brain, brain cancer? Well, because cell phones usually are held near the head when being used, the concern is whether or not they might contribute to or cause brain cancer. So what are the studies showing? Well, most studies that have been published so far have found, have found no link between cell phone use and the development of brain cancer. However, these studies have some important limitations that make it unlikely to end the controversy about whether cell phone use causes cancer risk. First of all, studies have not yet been able to follow people for very long periods of time. When tumors form after a known cancer causing exposure, it often takes decades for the cancer to develop. And because cell phones haven't been in widespread use for more than 20 years, it's not possible to rule out future health effects that have not yet been observed. Secondly, cell phone usage is constantly changing. Think about how long you used your cell phone 20 years ago. You're using a lot more nowadays. Phones today are also far different than the p- phones that were used in the past, and that makes it hard to know if the results of studies looking at cell phone use in the past, in years past, would still apply today. A third point, most of the studies published so far have focused on adults rather than children, Cell phone use is now wed- widespread even among younger children, so it's possible that if there are health effects, they may be more pronounced in children because their bodies may be more sensitive to radio frequency waves. Another concern is that children's lifetime exposure is going to be greater because they will use phones starting at an early age and continue for a much longer period of time. And finally, the, the measurement of how much cell phone use goes on has been rather crude. Most of these studies have relied on people's memories about their past cell phone use and in these types of studies it's hard to interpret any possible link to cancer one thing people with cancer are often looking for a possible reason for it so they may sometimes even subconsciously recall their cell phone usage differently than people who aren't using uh, people without cancer so what do the experts say well according to the food and drug administration which regulates the safety of radio emitting devices radiation emitting devices in this country they say this, based on our ongoing evaluation of this issue, the totality of the available scientific evidence continues to not support adverse health effects in humans caused by exposures or at, or at under the current radio frequency energy exposure limits. We believe the existing safety limits for cell phones remain acceptable for protecting the public health. So go ahead and make that phone call, gentlemen. But if you do and you want to play it safe, use your Bluetooth and you might want to use the phone in the speaker mode. And finally, myth number 10. Interesting. Drinking alcohol in moderation on a daily basis is good for your health. Fact. In the past, people who had a drink or two a day were thought to have a lower risk of stroke and heart problems than non-drinkers. I mean, we've all been hearing that, haven't we? Okay. But scientists were unsure whether that was actually due to the alcohol or whether it was because the people who didn't drink perhaps had uh, other health factors that lowered their risk of stroke. The results are just in from a recent study published just last week in which scientists followed more than 500,000 people for 10 years. The study found that just one alcoholic drink a day, every day, increased the risk of having a stroke. and One or two drinks daily caused the risk of stroke to increase by 10 to 15 percent. But that risk grew to as much as 35 percent if you had four alcoholic drinks a day. And a drink is defined as either a bottle of beer, a small glass of wine, or a single measure of spirits. Okay, one expert said this. Although it has been previously suggested that moderate alcohol intake may reduce risk of stroke or heart disease, this new study adds to evidence that finds no protective effect even at low levels of intake. Sadly, the hope that alcohol somehow protects against cardiovascular disease is probably unfounded. Another professor said this, I've always been reasonably convinced that moderate alcohol consumption was protective for cardiovascular disease, but now I'm having my doubts. And this research adds to a previous study from 2018 that looked at about 28 million people worldwide and determined that the harms of drinking far outweighed any potential health benefits. Study found that the health risks start out small with one drink a day, but the risk rose rapidly as people drank more. Considering the risk, it concluded that there is no safe level of alcohol. Another study is now examining more evidence to determine if there's a link between daily drinking and an increased risk of heart attack. So, we've looked at 10 not-so-deadly myths. But what about the deadly ones? We're going to look at four of these. If you believe these four deadly myths, and if you act on the basis of that belief, this may have serious or even fatal consequences for you. So... Here we go. Vaccinations for kids are dangerous. I know there certainly is a movement afoot. Uh, You just need to listen to the news. People believe that. Now, this is going to be a brief treatment of a rather complex topic. We could go on for a week or more looking at the details. I'm going to give you a summary of what I believe are the important points and my conclusions. And you're welcome to disagree, but you do so at your own peril. So there are two important points. First, are vaccinations dangerous? And secondly, how dangerous is it not to be vaccinated? Say the risk of a serious side effect from a vaccination against a particular disease is what, one in a million, okay? But the risk of the disease producing a serious problem was one in 10,000. What would you do? Okay. Well, I think you would probably have the vaccine if you thought you had a good chance of contracting the disease, It puts the very rare risks that might come with a vaccination in a different perspective. So let's look at this topic with a discerning eye. First of all, what is a vaccine? I think most of you know, but it's a type of drug that stimulates the body's immune system so that it can fight a disease that it's not come into contact with before. Vaccines are designed to prevent disease rather than treat a disease once you've caught it. A vaccine typically contains what we call a vaccine agent that resembles a disease causing bacteria or virus, or it may, uh, be, it may be a weakened or killed form of the bacteria or virus, or it may be made from the toxins that the bacteria or virus produces, or it may be uh, actually one of the surface proteins of the virus, of the virus or bacteria. The vaccine agent stimulates the body's immune system to produce antibodies that recognize it as a threat, destroy it. And further recognize and destroy any of the bacteria or viruses associated with that agent that the body may encounter in the future. So when you receive a vaccine, which is usually a shot, a nasal spray, or a sugar cube containing the vaccine, you're said to be, what, immunized. You've received some immunity to the disease against which you were vaccinated. Now, are vaccines effective? you know, hear people say, well, I really don't think they are, are that effective. Well, I think most of you have heard of smallpox. But mo- how many of you have actually seen someone with the disease? Probably no one. Here's a photograph of a person with smallpox. Do you know this? Over the centuries, smallpox has killed more people than all other infectious diseases combined. 300 million people died in the 1900s alone worldwide. Smallpox kills one-third of those people that it, that it infects, and those that it doesn't kill, it can scar or blind for life. And as of today, in the year 2019, there still is no known cure for smallpox. That means that if you or I develop smallpox today, there's still a one third chance that we're going to die. That's about the same death rate as for Ebola. Impressive. Now, the total number of deaths worldwide from Ebola in the 1900s was probably under 100,000. In the same time period, smallpox killed 3,000 times more 300 million that almost defies imagination. You know how frightened people were of Ebola. What would it have been like if smallpox were still around? Now, the history of smallpox, of vaccinations, is really intimately related to smallpox. It, it dates back to 1000 AD, which is about 1000 years ago, when the Chinese would blow, would blow smallpox scabs from an infected person up the nose of someone who didn't have smallpox. And the thought was that the small amount of smallpox containing material was hopefully not enough to cause the disease, but rather enough to give immunity to the person. As we talked about before, you expose the person to something associated with a disease-producing organism, and this causes antibody formation so that the person, person's immune system will recognize the organism when it tries to infect the person. So it was in the days of George Washington, only about 250 years ago, that we began to do this in the West. There was a British doctor named Edward Jenner. He noticed that dairy workers who had a case of cowpox, which was a disease similar to smallpox but much milder, never developed smallpox. So he took took the pus from a blister on the hand of a milkmaid with cowpox and scratched it into the arm of a boy. And this is the gutsy part. Six weeks later, he tried to give the boy smallpox. Can you imagine that? One in three of those people were going to die. But the boy was immune That took guts on Jenner's part. I mean, I can't imagine that being today with our current lawsuit-heavy world. And that was the beginning of the worldwide smallpox vaccination. Interestingly, Jonathan Edwards was vaccinated against smallpox just a bit before Jenner's technique. And for what did he die? He died from that vaccination because he contracted smallpox. He was a proponent of vaccinations, but uh, succumbed to a less than perfect form. As I mentioned, that was the beginning of worldwide smallpox vaccination. It was incredibly successful because as of 30 years ago, smallpox was completely eradicated from the world. There are only two places in the world where it exists. One is in a lab in Atlanta at the Centers for Disease Control, and the second is in a lab in Russia. That's it. Vaccinations have saved millions and millions of lives. Now, Every state in this country requires some vaccinations for kids before they enter public or private school. Parents may choose not to have their kids vaccinated for three reasons. There's a medical reason, such as a history of a serious allergy to a previous dose of vaccine. There could be a religious reason or a philosophical reason. But in California, many of you probably know this, in 2015, a bill was passed that does not allow a religious or philosophical exemption. The law was actually prompted by an outbreak of measles in 2014 that was traced to youngsters at Disneyland who had not been vaccinated. The law requires that all school children of daycare, preschool, and K-12 through schools be inoculated against 10 diseases, diphtheria, haemophilus influenza, polio, hepatitis B, measles, mumps, chickenpox, tetanus, whooping cough, and rubella. Today, the only students who can go without vaccine are children with doctor-certified medical exemptions and those who are homeschooled, at least in California. So what reasons are given by parents who express hesitancy or refusal to vaccinate? Well, number one, about 50 to 60% of parents agree that vaccines are necessary and safe and have their kids vaccinated. 40% though have concerns about necessity or safety of the vaccines. They may go ahead and vaccinate or they may delay or even refuse one or more of the vaccines. They usually don't question whether vaccines protect their children from diseases, but rather express concerns about serious side effects from the vaccine. Varicella, that's known as chickenpox, is the vaccine that most parents express the most concern about. And a very small percentage, less than 2% of parents, believe that vaccines are not necessary and refuse all vaccines. They tend to have a low level of trust in government and healthcare professionals and also a low level of trust in big pharmaceutical companies. They may use and listen to alternative medical professionals whom they consider to be more reliable sources of vaccine information. So let's look at the concerns that some of the 40% have, concerns about necessity or safety. What about vaccines and their side effects? Well, you may have heard of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, It's a rare disease uh, with a rapid onset of muscle weakness that's caused by the immune system attacking the nervous system. It rarely occurs following vaccinations, but some of you may remember the swine flu vaccine in the 70s that was actually linked to several cases of Guillain-Barre. But it's only fair to also point out that some patients developed Guillain-Barre syndrome after having the flu. Okay. Another side effect is something called intussusception. It's a telescoping of the small bowel into the large intestine. It can occur following certain vaccinations in rare cases. And something that you'll hear a lot about. Some parents fear that their children may develop autism. Some think that's the result of overloading the immune system with too many vaccines given in a short period of time, like the combination measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, known as MMR. This concern can actually be traced to a 1998 scientific paper that was subsequently exposed as fraudulent. There was a British doctor named Andrew Wakefield who conducted a very small-scale study with only 12 children and came to the conclusion that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccination could damage the intestines of children, allow the uptake of certain substances into the bloodstream that were damaging to the brain, and this could potentially lead to autism. But then several major studies were carried out to uh, check on this association, and none of them confirmed it. Then it was discovered that Wakefield had received payment from lawyers representing the parents of autistic children were searching for a link between autism and vaccination so the lawyers could sue the manufacturers of the vaccine. In 2004, six years after the paper, 10 of the 13 authors officially retracted their interpretation. In 2010, Dr. Wakefield was accused of unethical behavior and in light of those facts, lost his medical license. Okay. And the final category, what about those parents who believe that vaccines are not necessary, that less than 2%. They may believe that first their child is not at risk from the disease, or that the the disease being vaccinated against is not particularly dangerous, or they may have a low level of trust in government, healthcare professionals, and big pharma. So look at these one by one. By the way, some of these beliefs are a result of the success of childhood immunization programs. Not many cases of the disease occur, and because it's so rare, the child is at low risk for developing the disease. And also, as more diseases are successfully immunized against, parents have little familiarity with the devastating effects of vaccine-preventable diseases. They may be unaware of the risk to their child and the community at large if they refuse vaccines. For parents who are unfamiliar with vaccine-preventable diseases, the potential negative effects of the vaccine on their child may seem more important than the potential benefits. The reality is that in recent years, multiple outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases like measles, polio, rubella, and whooping cough have occurred among religious groups or in communities opposed to immunization. In fact, in 2014, the United States experienced a record number of measles cases, the highest number since the U.S. was declared measles-free in the year 2000. I mentioned earlier in 2015 about a case of a child, 11-year-old child, who visited Disneyland and that led to a multi-state outbreak of the disease the child came down with measles a week and a half after the visit and there were 125 additional cases linked to exposure to this child in other kids who visited Disneyland at the same time and the majority of all these cases occurred in patients and children who had whose parents had chosen or uh, or they whom for whatever reason had been had not been uh, vaccinated against measles So this year, I'm sure you've heard on the news, there are a record number of measles outbreaks in this country. We're having more cases this year than any other. Kids without vaccinations are at significant risk for developing the disease. Now you say, well, is measles really serious? What are the facts? Did you know that one in four cases of kids with measles are hospitalized? One in 1,000 develop encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain. It also often uh, produces permanent brain damage. And one in 1,000 of these kids are actually going to die from the disease. On the other hand, the death rate from the vaccine is far, 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 far less than that. So measles is a dangerous disease. The other reason given is mistrust in pharmaceutical companies who critics say are pushing vaccines to maximize their profits. The truth is that drug companies don't make a good deal of profit on vaccines. They're expensive to produce. They're often associated with lawsuits. And they're far less profitable than vaccines for chronic diseases. Oftentimes, the government has to literally force a manufacturer to produce a vaccine. So in conclusion, although there there are certain risks associated with certain vaccinations, I think that the risk to the child from vaccines is far less than the risk of the disease that they're being vaccinated against. And as this risk from the disease extends not only to the child, it also will extend to the community at large. My discernment would tell me that the wisest course is to have your children vaccinated unless there's a medical reason not to do so. To fail to do so may have fatal consequences, not only for the child, but also for other kids in the community. The almost right is that there is danger with vaccines, but the right is that it's much more dangerous not to vaccinate. A second one, you don't need an annual physical. Is that a myth? Well, we've got to be careful about relying on anecdotal reasons when Discerning right from almost right anecdotes may be true, but they don't pour, prove a more general point. I'll give you an example uh, if I said I Know someone who died in the 1994 earthquake and for that reason, California is a very unsafe place to live Some of you would say well. I was here at the earthquake and I didn't die The anecdote is true. Some people did die in the earthquake, but it doesn't prove that California is very unsafe Anecdotes don't prove points In the same way, if I told you that I know someone whose doctor diagnosed prostate cancer on their annual physical, that doesn't prove that everyone needs an annual physical. So let's look at the issue of needing an annual physical. What are the facts? Well, years ago, it was accepted that, what, everyone needed an annual physical. Not everyone had one, but in general, people agree that it was probably a good idea. My personal doctor always reminds me that he once diagnosed a kidney cancer on an annual physical by noting that the man had an enlarged testicle. The cancer would not have been diagnosed for years, he maintains, that the patient had waited until he had symptoms of back pain or blood in the urine. And by that time, the kidney cancer would have been incurable. That annual physical saved his life, he tells me. But that doesn't prove the point that annual physicals uh, are needed by everyone. In fact, nowadays, most experts don't believe in the need for a yearly check-in with a doctor, where they listen to your heart, check your blood pressure, help you nip any looming health issues in the bud. Rather, an annual wellness check is a good idea. But it does, doesn't need to take the form of an annual physical. Annual physicals are a familiar part of the healthcare system. Uh, a growing, but a growing pile of evidence finds that for healthy people without any medical reasons, any medical symptoms, they are probably a waste of time and money, and in some cases do more harm than good. There was a large scale review in 2012 that found that annual physical exams do nothing to improve a patient's health or health outcomes. Another recent study found some evidence that they could reassure people that their health was good and uh, thereby decrease worry, but it didn't find that these exams saved lives or prevented disease. In fact, many of the abnormal findings on tests or physical exams may lead to further tests, which are unnecessary, expensive and even sometimes dangerous themselves. So as a result of these rather lackluster findings, some experts have called for an end to annual physicals. If you're healthy... There's every reason to believe these visits make no difference. Doing a bunch of unnecessary tests and taking up valuable time for people who are well, that's not useful. That's what some folks will tell you. But it's expensive. They say that it costs about $5 billion every year for annual physicals, plus the time lost from work. It's also a big drag on physician's hours. Physicians are busy taking care of sicker people, or at least they should be. But... I would propose something that's better, and it's something that has really, I think, gained consensus, and that's called the annual wellness check. Annual visit with your doctor helps your doctor and yourself form a closer relationship and improve the quality of your care. If you have a health problem in the future, uh, something comes up, you're more likely to call your doctor. It's also an opportunity for Things like uh, flu shots for certain screening tests that need to be done. Uh, At certain ages, you need to have colonoscopy, yada, yada, yada. So I, I would propose the annual wellness check. Annual physicals, it is a medical myth. They aren't necessary, but an annual wellness check does a great deal of good, so I would suggest that. Now, what if you have health problems? We're not talking about you. If you have health problems, don't skip your annual physical. It's for people... Who are healthy, not folks with health problems. If you're sick, or if you have symptoms of a disease, or if you have a strong family history of a disease, then yes, you should be seeing the doctor at least once a year. They may not choose to do a physical, but at least checking in with them is very, very important. Was,
1: you know, a wellness check
0: and a physical. physical, they actually like poke you here, poke you there, listen to your lungs, look in your eyes, your nose, check your skin, things like that. Uh, that a, a wellness check would be things where they would ask. Are you having problems with this, that, this, or this? Do you have any concerns about this? How are you doing in terms of your diet? What's your weight doing? Uh, Are you exercising regularly? Are you getting enough sleep? Uh, Things of that type, as opposed to just having them come in and uh, where they just sort of examine you and ask a few questions and that's it. Wellness check is focusing on prevention. Physicals really aren't a great tool for that. Yes, sir. No. Uh, There may be some blood tests that should be done annually, but a a large battery of blood tests every year, they've done studies on that and it's really not necessary. In fact, just the the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen that a lot of guys were having tests for that every year, now that has pretty much been relegated to the junk pile. Maybe occasionally you do it, but it's not the sort of thing that you do every year. Uh, when you do it every year, you'll find levels going up and people are having biopsies and complications are happening from those. Uh, So again, there are The uh, large battery of tests every year, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, people still do it, but there can be problems that arise from it. So the the best thought is that, no, that's not a necessary thing. There are certain tests that should be done like a cholesterol check, a blood sugar check, and as you get older, those should be done more frequently. But a large battery of tests every year is not thought by most healthcare experts to be helpful or certainly not necessary. It's a good question. Uh, The question was how often. Uh, If you look, uh, there are a number of authoritative sources that will tell you very specifically what you should have done, at what age you should have it done. You can find those online, or your your medical doctor should also uh, would also be able to help you with that. What's that? Sorry. I said mine
1: does every year, but I'm just saying that. Yeah. Like like my coloscopy, I got like a ten year.
0: Your uh, colonoscopy. yeah, the, those are you can find those online. Those are uh, published by like the Centers for Disease Control, uh, any number of uh, aid, uh, organizations that that have that will are happy to give you guidelines in terms of what what and when. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Uh, number three, sleep is optional. Okay, there's a book uh, by a fellow named Matthew Walker, most excellent, called Why We Sleep. In it, he asks the questions. Do you think you get enough sleep? You got enough sleep this past week? Can you recall the last time you woke up without an alarm clock, feeling refreshed, not needing caffeine? Well, the answer to either of these questions is, no, you're not alone. Two thirds of adults in all developing nations in the world, or all developed nations in the world, fail to obtain the recommended eight hours of nightly sleep. I'm amazed that a third of people did. Who are these people? They don't have jobs. And I doubt that you're surprised by this fact, but you may be surprised by the consequences. Here are the facts. Routinely sleeping less than six or seven hours a night demolishes your immune system, as well as more than doubling your risk of cancer. Insufficient sleep is a key lifestyle factor determining whether or not you will develop Alzheimer's disease. Many of you remember that Ronald Reagan and... British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher were both known for their ability to get by on four or five hours of sleep per night. They both died of what? Alzheimer's disease. Right, exactly. Inadequate sleep, even moderate reduction for just a week, disrupts blood sugar levels so profoundly that you would be classified as pre-diabetic if you didn't have a history of the sleep disturbance. Short sleeping increases the likelihood of your coronary arteries becoming blocked and brittle, setting you on a path toward cardiovascular disease, stroke and congestive heart failure. Charlotte Bronte, Wuthering Heights, the famous British authoress wrote that a ruffled mind makes a restless pillow. And by that, she was speaking of how emotional upset disrupts your sleep. But it's also very true that the converse is true. Sleep, Disruption leads to emotional upset since it contributes to all major mental conditions, including depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. Perhaps you've also noticed a desire to eat more when you're, when you're tired. Well, that's no coincidence because too little sleep increases concentration of a hormone that makes you feel hungry. While at the same time, it suppresses a companion hormone that otherwise signals food satisfaction. So despite being full, you still want to eat more. It's a proven recipe for weight gain. Too little sleep makes for a larger waistline. Worse, since even if you attempt a diet, but if you don't get enough sleep while doing it, it's futile since most of the weight you lose will come from your lean body mass, lean body muscle mass, not fat. Add to the above health consequences. Add them all up. And I think you would conclude that the shorter your sleep at night, the shorter your lifespan You may have heard the old saying, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Well, adopt this mindset and you will be dead sooner and the quality of your (laughs) short life will be worse. The The rubber band of sleep deprivation can stretch only so far before it snaps. Every aspect of our wellness is eroded by sleep neglect, so much that the World Health Organization has officially declared that there is a sleep loss epidemic. Throughout industrialized nations, smallpox are replaced by sleep deprivation. it's no coincidence that countries where sleep time has declined most dramatically over the past century, like the United States, United Kingdom, Japan, South Korea, and other countries in Western Europe, these are all the countries that are suffering the greatest risk in rates of physical diseases and mental disorders that I just mentioned. Scientists have even started recommending to doctors that they start prescribing sleep. As medical advice goes, it's probably the most painless and enjoyable to follow. Do not, however... Mistake this as a plea to doctors to start prescribing more sleeping pills. It's quite the opposite, in fact. There are significant negative health consequences that result from the use of sleeping medication. But can we go so far as to say that a lack of sleep can kill you outright? Well, it actually does on at least two counts. There's a very rare genetic disorder called fatal familial insomnia. It starts with insomnia in your 40s. It gets worse so that several months into the disease the patient stops sleeping altogether. By this time, they start to lose many basic brain and body functions, and there is no drug that we currently have that will help the patient sleep. After 12 to 18 months of no sleep, the patient will die. And though exceedingly rare, this disorder does prove that a lack of sleep can kill a human being. But a more common and second way in which a lack of sleep can kill you is when you get behind the wheel of a car not having had sufficient sleep. Drowsy driving is a cause of hundreds of thousands of traffic accidents and traffic deaths each year. And it's not only the life of the sleep-deprived individuals that's at risk, but the lives of those around them. One person dies in a traffic accident every hour in the U.S. due to a fatigue-related error. In, in fact, the number of car accidents caused by drowsy driving, get this, is greater than the number caused by alcohol and drugs combined. Wow. Yet our society does not seem particularly concerned by a lack of sleep. And why is that? Well, I think it's in part because science has failed to explain why we need sleep. Sleep remained one of the last great biological mysteries into the last 20 years. Powerful problem-solving methods in science, things like genetics, molecular biology, high-powered digital technology, were unable to lock many of the reasons behind sleep. Brilliant minds like Nobel Prize winner Francis Crick, who deduced the twisted ladder structure of DNA, or the famous Roman educator Quintilian, and even Sigmund Freud have all tried, but without complete success, to explain why we sleep. To better understand the state of prior scientific ignorance, imagine the birth of your first child. Okay, at the hospital, the doctor enters the room and, and says this, Congratulations, it's a healthy baby boy. We've completed all the preliminary tests and everything looks good. The doctor smiles reassuringly and starts walking toward the door. However, just before exiting the room, the doctor turns around and says, there's just one thing. From this moment forth and for the rest of your child's entire life, he will repeatedly and routinely lapse into a state of apparent coma. It may even resemble death at times. And while his body lies still, his mind will often be filled with stunning, bizarre hallucinations. The state will consume one third of his life, and I have absolutely no idea why he'll do it or what it's for. Good luck. <laughs> and astonishingly, but until very recently, this was reality. Doctors and scientists could not give you a consistent or complete answer as to why we sleep. Consider that we've known the functions of the other three basic drives, but to eat, to drink, to reproduce, for thousands of years. Yet the reason for the fourth main biological drive, consistent across the entire animal kingdom, the drive for sleep, has continued to elude science. Sleep is surely one of the most puzzling of all human behaviors. But as it turns out, the question, why do we sleep, is the wrong question. It it implied that there was a single function, one reason that we slept and we went in search of it. Theories range from the logical, it was a time to conserve energy, or the peculiar, it was an opportunity for eyeball oxygenation, to the psychoanalytic, it was a non-conscious state in which we fulfill repressed wishes. The truth is that sleep is infinitely more complex, profoundly more interesting and alarmingly more health relevant. We sleep for many reasons. It produces an amazing number of nighttime benefits that nourish both our brains and our bodies. There doesn't, in fact, seem to be one major organ within the body or process within the brain that isn't enhanced by sleep and that isn't impaired when we don't get enough. Now, the fact that we receive so many health benefits each night from sleep shouldn't be surprising. I mean, after all, we're awake for two thirds of our lives, and we don't achieve just one useful thing during that stretch of time. We accomplish many things that promote our well being. Why then would we expect sleep and the 25 to 30 years on average that it takes from our lives to offer one function only? It's really through an explosion of discoveries over the past 20 years that we've come to realize that sleep dispenses a multitude of health insuring benefits that you refill every 24 hours, should you choose. Within the brain, sleep does what? It improves many things, including your ability to learn, to memorize, to make logical decisions and choices. It benefits our psychological health. It recalibrates our emotional brain circuits and allows us to navigate next day's social and psychological challenges with cool-headed composure. We're even beginning to understand the most controversial of all conscious experiences, the dream Dreaming produ- provides a unique number of benefits. It's a neurochemical bath for your brain that softens painful memories. And it's a virtual reality space in which the brain weaves together past and present knowledge and inspires creativity. Downstairs of the body, sleep restocks our immune system. It helps to fight cancer, it prevents infection, it wards off all manner of sickness. It reforms the body's metabolic state by fine tuning the balance of insulin and circulating glucose. It further regulates our appetite. It helps control our body weight through healthy food selection rather than rash impulsivity. Plentiful sleep also maintains the bacteria within your gut, which is critical for your nutritional health. It's also essential for the fitness of our cardiovascular system, lowering your blood pressure when and keep your keeping your heart in excellent condition. A balanced diet. And exercise are of vital importance, yes, but we now see sleep as what? The preeminent force in this health trinity, if you will. The physical and mental problems caused by one night of bad sleep dwarf those caused by an equivalent absence of food or exercise. It's difficult to imagine any other state, natural or medically produced, that affords a more powerful benefit to physical and mental health at every level of analysis based on a rich, new scientific understanding of sleep that we no longer have to ask what sleep is good for. Instead, we're now forced to wonder whether there are any biological functions that don't benefit from a good night's sleep. So far, as a result of thousands of studies that insist the answer is no, there don't appear to be any. And emerging from this research is a powerful message. Sleep is the single most effective thing we can do to reset our brain and body health each day. But unfortunately, the real evidence that makes clear all of the dangers that affects individuals and societies when sleep becomes short haven't been clearly communicated to the public. It's the most glowing omission in our current healthcare conversation. So is sleep optional for good health? Most definitely not. In fact, it can be lethal. I recommend that you give yourself seven to eight hours of what I call sleep opportunity each night. In other words, you need to stay in bed that long. Sleep or no sleep. And if you do that on a consistent basis, you're soon going to find yourself yourself sleeping most of those hours. In fact, when people talk about how they didn't sleep well at night, maybe they were in bed for seven hours, but they believe they only slept a few, they're usually underestimating the amount of time that they were asleep. And one final thing, what about naps? Some people power nap in the afternoon for 10 minutes to make up for the fact that they slept only five or six hours the night before. Although it's better than no nap, you certainly aren't and you're going to feel more refreshed after nap, the reality is that your brains do best with seven or eight hours of sleep. And that's because as the night progresses, you get what's called REM sleep. There's REM and non-REM sleep. They cycle back and forth through the course of the night. Early in the morning hours, you tend to get more and more REM sleep. And REM sleep is what is is absolutely critical for your emotional stability and your creativity. When you find yourself short-tempered the next day because of lack of sleep, it's a lack of REM sleep. So... Uh, you may not always get seven hours of sleep a night, but try to make it a priority. So you're almost right when you say that sleep is optional, but you're right when you say that sleep is not optional for good health, and that the failure to get seven or eight hours a night will shorten your life and worsen your health. What about
1: the idea of naps? So, I mean, is that still good for
0: you? Yeah, naps, NAPS will certainly refresh you, but they're not a substitute for sleeping seven or eight hours. I mean, Oh, yeah. In fact, if you look at our biological clock, we're we're geared to sleep at night, but there is also a time after lunch, not just because we had food, but just in the early afternoon when our bodies are also geared to sleep. So that's actually, uh, if you're listening to your body, you, you should be taking a nap shortly after lunch. Yeah. Yes, sir. I Mike. Uh, so you would probably support
1: the idea of uh, sleep nap?
0: It's a terrible problem, and you—if you have sleep apnea, that definitely I needs to be treated. Use my apparatus? Yeah, I mean it's it—that uh, causes a variety of issues, uh, heart issues, uh, et cetera, et cetera. In addition to just lack of sleep and all the problems that flow from that, night. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, then, uh, we have pressed upon our primary
1: care physician that we need more sleep, and what can be done about getting more sleep aside from sleeping pills? What can a doctor do for us?
0: What can your doctor do to help you sleep? Well, uh, there, there is a, a great deal of help available online, certainly. There's uh, something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is not psych- psychological therapy for you, but it's, a, it's a, a technique that will allow you to sleep better at night. So there are a number of tools like that uh, that are available, uh, whether it be online speaking to your doctor. There are sites online that have to do with uh, helping people to sleep, so I'd avail yourself of some of those. But The doctor really can't help you with any medicine. I mean, um, well, you know, I, I'm not saying that sleeping pills are, are, are horrific. Uh, the occasional sleeping pill is not a bad thing at all, but it's just a chronic chronic use of sleeping pill is a problem Yeah, for a number of reasons. You tend to be less awake the next day, more prone to accidents things of that type. If you're taking Benadryl, over-the-counter thing, that is associated with a higher risk of dementia. So there are a number of problems with those. Yes? For so those of us that um, have a snoring problem, yes. so
1: we've got to address it for our own being,
0: and for our spouse. Right. We both need to sleep,
1: right? And right. Be just. Yes. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yes, sir. Doctor, can you uh, expand the uh, difference between a night's sleep they sleep because you know some of us work at night yeah. and we uh, sleep in the day and you know sleeping is supposed to be a night routine.
0: Night yeah. Well, I, it's not so much when you sleep, it's the quantity of sleep that you get. I mean you can get eight hours of sleep during the day and have it be a very good sleep. The problem with people sleeping during the day is that they usually uh, cycle between sleeping at night and sleeping the day because they'll, they'll have a job that requires that they work uh, at night uh, but then on the weekends, they'll try to, uh, you know, regain time with the family, so they're switching back and forth, and that disrupts your sleep patterns significantly. Uh, like our aspect, our health. Yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, I, you I, I, uh, know, sorry to say, but it definitely does. People who are night shift workers have uh, significantly more health problems than people who do not. Yeah, so that's proven. yeah, yeah, it is proven. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Though. Oh, you bet. Um only older people have heart disease. I am, we're running a little short of time, so I'm not going to go into detail. I would just simply say this. Younger people do have heart disease. 20% of all heart attacks are men under the age of 50. Many of you remember Jim Fix, who was the, uh, there's Jim Fix, died at age 52 of uh, a, a heart attack. He was a, he was the guy who wrote the book, the complete book of running, the complete book of running. Uh, he really popularized the, the jogging craze. Uh. Interestingly, he was suffering chest pain in the weeks before he uh, he died. He, in an autopsy, was found to have uh, have had several small heart attacks prior to that. So I'm not going to expound on it. I'm just going to simply say, guys, it can occur. Uh, exercise, diet, all the things that you probably know about are important. And very importantly, if you begin to experience symptoms of what you think are a heart attack, chest pain, back pain, Uh, shortness of breath, call 911. Because what happens is if you drive yourself to the emergency room or if you have a friend do it, by the time you get there, the time from the symptom to receiving treatment in the emergency room is an hour longer than if you were to call 911. And so many things, uh, time is muscle, this is what the American Heart Association says. That means that the longer you have those symptoms, uh, if you're having a heart attack, the more death of heart muscle you're experiencing. And this is going to definitely impact the quality of your life, your recovery, things of that type. So uh, it's, uh, it's sort of a macho thing to push through it. Don't call 911. Have someone call 911 uh, and, and receive treatment. It may be a false alarm, but much better that than it be an actual heart attack and you're suffering injury from it. Uh, discernment. I want to help you guys discern, okay? Uh, we, we've, we've given you a lot of information about things. On the handout, there are some trusted resources, your doctor or other qualified health professional. There's something called UpToDate, which is the definitive online database for medical information that's used by health professionals. It's pricey. It's about 1000 bucks a year. But for people who are really into health or into the health of others around them who want to be experts, uh, it's another good trusted resource. Consumer reports on health, Duke Medicine, health news, re- reliable monthly subscription newsletters. Also, websites have established medical centers, medical schools, medical journals, nonprofit research centers, other good sources. So to help you in terms of figuring out what's right as opposed to what's almost right, I would recommend this. If you just go online to the web uh, and just look, there is so much information, but you have to have discernment to be able to sort it out. I mean, you, cyberchondriacs people who go online to look up their symptoms and try to figure out what they are. It's a difficult thing to do. It requires discernment. You may be able to figure out something that's almost right, but it may not be completely right. Say you have swelling of your feet. You go online. What does it say? You could be having heart failure, kidney failure. Okay, And so you worry about that. You worry about that. A week later, you drop dead of a pulmonary embolism because the swelling you were having in your feet was due to a blood clot in your calf. And if you'd seen your doctor, he probably would have picked that up based upon some other things that you didn't know to to look out for. So that's why I'm saying a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Uh, Rely on your doctor. Have an annual well-being check and use your doctor as a resource. Give them a call if you have a question about something. That's one of the main reasons why you have these annual checks is to establish that relationship. Guys, good questions. I'm happy to stay for as long as the questions go on. Yes, sir. I know we're pressed for time, doctor. Is that a question? No, I'm not pressed at all. Okay. Whoever whoever needs to leave may go. Those of you who have questions, I'll stay until they're all answered. Trusted resources. Yes. Okay. So
1: here I don't want to open up a can of work. Yes. Uh, I have in my family people who are nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, doctors, and a lot of my family members kind of rely on them for a lot of knowledge. Here's been my observation, and maybe you can give me your opinion, is it seems to be that there is a limited amount of education in the medical industry when it comes to the nutrition aspect. And Mm -hmm. I find personal experience, and even seeing family with quote-unquote health issues, that when they do see their doctor, and I'm not going to discredit the medicine, doctors doctors, doctors do, but it is very symptom-focused, and there's not a lot of getting to the root cause. And and I guess what I mean by that is the research I've done is uh, there's a lot of diseases and symptoms and things that are linked to a deeper thing related to what we eat and I just believe there's a big correlation between nutrition and how we feel. Mm-hmm. And I still think there's a disconnect with the, you know, like for example, I, I now go to a doctor like yourself, went to medical school, but he's more of a homeopath. He believes mm-hmm. there's a lot of things mm-hmm. from low T to erectile dysfunction, whatever it is across the board that can be, for lack of a better word, fixed with a proper diet. Would you mm-hmm. care to com- comment on that as far as maybe a little disconnect symptom basis?
0: Right. Right. Well, there are lots of opinions, uh, and uh, if, if, but if you look at the studies that are done, uh, most of these things that you would say, well, that seems a little bit funny, probably don't find much support in the studies. There may be anecdote, anecdotal evidence for them, but if you do a, a good double-blind study where people are uh, doing things uh, and, and they're being monitored and tested, you, you're not going to see that sort of thing. Uh, so I would, I would say if I was looking for information about nutrition, I would go to a registered dietitian. I would not go to a nutritionist, not to say that they don't know things, but a registered dietitian sort of ha- has training in the, in the science scientific aspect. You know, I come from a Western medicine perspective. And, I, that's, and if you go to the, to the Orient, that's not going to be the answer that you're going to get. But that's an answer that I've lived my life by. My wife is a registered dietitian, and I have done well by that in terms of my own physical health uh, and things of that type. So I would, I would come down on that side of things. That's not to say that there aren't other ways of doing it, but uh, I think a lot of these claims for things are sh- long on claim and uh, short on, on actual evidence. So I would be careful. I'd be discerning. Uh, you want to be not almost right, but you want to be right about it. Uh, doctors don't always tend to be as well educated, particularly some of the older physicians, uh, but a registered dietitian is a very good resource. So I would uh, certainly avail myself of, of that resource. Not to say you shouldn't look to other people as well, but uh, that I have found to be someone who is uh, uh, a good source of nutritional advice. Thanks. Yes, you bet. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot of cell phones contributing to heart cancer. To to what type of cancer? Okay, right, right. There is no sign. There is no good evidence that it causes that. But on the other hand, uh, it's not going to hurt you to carry it on your hip. Uh, and it just out of an, ab- an abundance of caution, because I was mentioning these studies, uh, you know, they only go back so far, and they are only looking at the, the patterns of use that were present. At that time, you may be someone who's using it much more in that particular way. So I, I'd say there's no evidence to, to, suggest, to, pr- to prove that cell phones cause any of these things, but it doesn't hurt to carry your phone, cell phone somewhere else. doesn't hurt to use your Bluetooth. doesn't hurt to use it with speaker if you're concerned about those things. Yes, sir. Uh, I've been working my way
1: through a book called How Not to Die. Okay. It basically is a book that looks at all the major illnesses, uh, and uh, the, the doctor who wrote it is suggesting a plant-based diet as, sure. a, as a cure for many of these. Sure. One of the studies that he mentioned dealing with pancreatic cancer is a major study, a very large study in Great Britain, mm-hmm. that seemed to show a relationship, not necessarily a correlation, a relationship between the amount of chicken you eat mm-hmm. and pancreatic cancer. And the, the study looked at four to five times a week mm-hmm. for chicken. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that, or is there anything you're aware of? I mean, if you if you, just, you do in yeah, large numbers is yeah, there,
0: there certainly is not a consensus on that. If you yeah. speak to experts in the field of pancreatic cancer, you're not going to find people saying, "Yeah, well, that is definitely that's definitely the missing link there." It's it's these darn chicken wing things that have been fouling us up for years. Uh, I would say, okay, fine, but it's something that other studies have not found. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, keep an eye on it, sort of like the alcohol and, uh, and health. You know, For years, we were hearing a couple of drinks a day are good for your health. Now we're being told a couple of drinks a day increase your risk of stroke by 15%. So you know, studies change, and maybe in another couple of years, it'll be a bit different. So I try to be moderate. In things, uh, and things, uh, and realize that we're all going to die. God has appointed the number of years for us, and we're going on to something that's far better than anything we've got here on this earth. Right. But I think uh, as long as we're here, we need to uh, be as much as we can of good health so we can serve the Lord usefully. And that's really the thrust behind this. Thank you. You bet. Yes, sir. No. No, There's a question about chemical imbalance causing various uh, things. I, there is a very well-known psychiatrist uh, named uh, Peter Bregan who said that the only chemical imbalances that exist in the brain are those caused by psychotropic drugs, uh, that is drugs used to treat mental illness. Uh, I think that you, you can certainly uh, affect the nerve pathways in the brain with certain medications. But to say that the cause, root cause of depression or the root cause of uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder is a chemical balance, there's not one shred of evidence to su- suggest that. And researchers in the field have long since abandoned that. And in fact, most never believed that that was the case. That was a myth that was really thrust upon us by the big pharmaceutical companies. That's absolutely the truth. They sell, sell more drugs if uh, they do direct-to-consumer marketing. And they present it very simply, you know, you have a disease, your disease is caused by a lack of, uh, uh, a, cer- of uh, a certain chemical in your brain, and you need to have something that alters the amount of that chemical in those synapses to make you happy. Uh, that's the serotonin the serotonin theory. But I would just say, from a scientific point of view, it's bankrupt. There's nothing to suggest that that's the case. Now, does that mean that drugs that contain uh, things that increase your serotonin level are, are, are not going to help or not going to affect the way you your your moods go? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that the underlying cause of these problems is not a chemical imbalance. What's the
1: underlying
0: cause then? It's case by case Well I don't I don't know that for instance if you have a uh, if 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 you think in a certain way and we're 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 spiritual, okay, and we're physical. Certain thought patterns can lead to depression, unha- unhappiness. Uh, certain sin in our lives can lead to uh, depression. Uh, and so is that the result of a chemical? I wouldn't say so. Now, the fact that you act in a certain way, does that affect the way the chemicals are flowing in your brain, the nerve pathways are going? Sure, it does because our 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 mind uses our brain as an outworking of itself. So sure, there will be things that you'll see, but does it, does that mean that uh, you should treat those nerve issues with drugs? No, uh, may, that's where biblical counseling comes in. You're treating the spiritual aspect. But does it mean that you shouldn't use drugs to help out in certain cases? Doesn't mean that either. I would, if I had a a mental issue, I, I would first make sure that spiritually I was in in the right place. Uh, there are a lot of these drugs that can hurt you. There's just this entire class of SSRIs, Prozac, all those things. There are so many problems with those drugs. Once you get on them, it's very hard to get off of them. The effects linger for years and years and years. So I'd be very careful of what to put in my body. On the other hand, there was a recent study of depression, postpartum depression in women, women becoming depressed after childbirth, uh, where these women were treated with, uh, with basically uh, certain types of medications that affected their hormone levels very successful in relieving their depression so uh, i think that that makes good sense that seems to be a more of a medical cause of their depression people with low thyroid conditions will have depression there any if you have cancer you're probably going to be depressed and if you're told you're going to die in three years you know people you know, there are things about our bodies that affect our minds for sure but the i think we need to be sure though that spiritually we're in the we're in the right place yes sir Okay. I know it's very um, with that, why is it that vaccines is kind of I work for the fire department when I go and
1: deal with the patient, right? One of my first questions that I ask example history is are you Right. I don't just give a, a drug. Sure.
0: Well, I, I think part of it's just a lack of knowledge. Uh, it, it's um, so, like in can- uh, just in the medical part, just in science in general. It's like uh, in the past, you were treating like certain types of cancer with here's your chemotherapy. Now it uh, it's in many cases tailored to the particular uh, cancer that they have. They, they study it in the laboratory, they find out uh, about the genetics, uh, the, uh, the, the, the biochemistry of that particular cancer. And then they design medications that are specific for that. And it may be in the future that, uh, you know, when they sequence the human genome, and they'll start doing that for individual kids, and they'll look and say, okay, well, you have a predisposition toward this, so you need this sort of a vaccination, and you don't have a predisposition, so maybe you don't need that type. But at this point, the, the, the knowledge is not there. So, what we try to do is confer herd immunity on people. You get seventy five percent of the population vaccinated against a certain illness, and you effectively eliminate the illness so that's uh, that's that 's the approach that we that they take. The other side is how many how many effects are there that are really significant that, that result from immunizations that are really significant effects and I think the uh, there, there are probably some that are. Um, Some people would say, well, one is too many. But the problem is is that if you start excluding people, you're going to end up with these communities like you have now, where people are coming down with with measles, with polio, with things that are preventable. And those do definitely have consequences for for the lives of the kids. One out of every thousand kids with measles is going to die. One in four is going to go to the hospital where you pick up all all sorts of problems. So I think it's a good question. I think as the state of knowledge improves, I think that's something that could certainly be done and will probably be done. Yeah. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, Hi.
1: So how how, do, how would I go
0: about finding a registered dietitian? If you just go online and type in registered dietitian in my area.
1: In, oh, in my yeah, or closest to
0: me. Here, Erica, and yeah.
1: If you wake up at night, how long should you lay in bed before you decide, well, I better get up and read? Or should you, because I've laid yeah. there for like an
0: hour. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think most experts would say if after 30 minutes you're not sleeping, get up and do something boring Yeah. and yeah. then try to go back to bed. Yeah, because yeah. if you turn on a TV, you'll see something exciting, yeah. you right. watch a race. But there are all sorts of things that they will have you doing that are called uh, sleep hygiene, like 20 or 30 things in order to, you know, as you start getting ready for bed, you don't want to have blue light you know, from the TV. You don't want to be uh, you know, with the TV playing in the bedroom. Uh, you want to have a cool room. You you want to have some background noise. Uh, you don't want to be doing things before bedtime like trying to balance your checkbook. Right. Uh, just a, a long checklist. Certain things, you shouldn't be drinking caffeine after noon. Uh, you should be uh, exercising earlier in the day. You shouldn't be eating late at night. You should be drinking alcohol late at night. Just a long list of things. And if you incorporate those, you're probably going to sleep fairly well. But if you're not getting the kind of sleep that you would like you speak to your doctor about it because there is help available uh not necessarily medication this cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia very effective doesn't involve medication at all it's not a psychological type of thing where they ask you psychological questions it's just a a, a way of uh helping people sleep better and it's really quite effective so if you're having trouble sleeping check with a medical doctor it could be something like sleep apnea okay okay are you using it. And I use it every night. Okay. Uh, religiously, and
1: um, um, I wake up sometimes. And sometimes I don't, and I'm trying to look for patterns. And sometimes, if I can hike more in the morning before I come to work, okay, I'll be a little bit more tired.
0: Yeah. So. Okay. Yep.
1: Yeah. Exercise is important.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, George, thank you for oh, sure. educating us just on some of
1: these basics that are we'll probably overlooked. But uh, my question is more on search of a doctor outside of a referral from somebody. Right. What are some of the things that we should be looking for to find a doctor? I right.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, you can, people tend to look on online review sites now uh, to see what other people have had to say. I, I think that's important. Uh, you know, I think you uh, probably checking with the, uh, you know, uh, making sure they don't have uh, any uh, disciplinary actions pending against them. I think that's an important thing to do. Also, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, just talking to people who've been to the doctor. Uh, and I, when I was looking for an accountant, years ago. I went and interviewed several people and I learned a lot about it. I got sort of how we related to one another. I think that's important. You need to find someone in whom you feel comfortable. Uh, and uh, you know, if they have, uh, if they're board certified, if they're up to date on all their things, you know, I, I, I think there are, lots, there are lots of great doctors out there. Just finding someone that seems to fit you, works with you, feel comfortable with, that you, you're going to feel comfortable calling. Uh, you know, ask what their li- what their availability is if they're a primary care doctor. You know, because you want to be able to call them. Are they going to be around? Is someone on call for them? It, just issues like that. I think are all important. So there is no
1: difference between an older doctor. He's
0: not more wiser than one. Of those a older doctor has more experience, and that certainly is a good thing. And on the other hand, sometimes a younger doctor is up to date on everything, and uh, maybe a little bit more energetic and a little bit more enthused, maybe out to make a name for themselves. So I think there. You know, a lot of it's just the personality of the person involved. Yes, sir?
1: Um, what are you hearing about uh, the latest marijuana you know, use right. for medical or recreational
0: use? Yeah. Medical mar- marijuana definitely has some negative effects in terms of what it does to your brain. Uh, but that's not the same as CBD oil, which is something that's uh, finding a lot of uses. Uh, I'm not sure that it really does a lot of good for a lot of things, but people believe it does and sometimes that's good enough. I think just medical marijuana, just uh, or just marijuana usage. If you start, if you're looking at that sort of thing, long-term marijuana usage definitely has some negative effects on people. There's no question about that.
1: CBD oil is proven to,
0: I guess. Help, I wouldn't say proven. Uh, it's uh, it helps with epilepsy. I think that's about the only thing that's really secure. Other things, it's more anecdotal. But people use it for like nausea and chemotherapy and. We'll uh, use marijuana for stuff like that. Uh, there are a lot of things that people will say, well, it's fairly harmless, so try it. That's probably the case for CBD oil. It's fairly harmless. But marijuana, I'd, I'd be careful of it. That's, that's, uh, that's hallucinogen. That yeah. yeah. It's legal here, but not in the United States. How does that work? <laughs> yes, sir? Well, what's your perspective on Eastern medicine? About East, what, uh, what, what is my take on Eastern medicine? Yeah it obviously works for billions of people. Uh, so it's not something I know that much about it. It's a, it's a different comes at things from a different perspective, but, uh, I think it's probably if, if, uh, you know, some people try to blend the two. I don't know how well that works. Uh, sometimes you, you get in trouble with that, but I, I don't know. The other thing I don't know is how many skilled practitioners you're going to have over here. Obviously there are going to be some, but, um, uh, those would be, just be some things, but I, I wouldn't dismiss it out of hand. Uh, certainly, acupuncture is, uh, many people have found that to be very, very helpful. Uh, yes, sir. speaking of someone whose spouse has had a stroke and uh, you're counseling that person as far as... Because uh, they, they seem
1: to have, I guess the stroke is, they a
0: the physical change in this person. They seem to either become more forgetful or... Yeah. Uh, or just uh, their disposition. Well, certainly if you have a stroke that affects your brain, it's going to affect your, your personality, your, you know, your, your expression of that personality, uh, just the way you interact with the world. So... Uh, i mean it, it's a significant problem for sure, and you know, somewhat like that you want to make sure that they were plugged into a, a rehab program so that they've been rehabilitated to the maximum degree and then I think you would counsel counsel both both the victim as well as the uh, the spouse of the victim i mean it's uh, there are just a wide range of things that could you know the issues that would need to be dealt with anger uh, just uh, things of that type but sort of on a case by case basis. Yes, sir. Well, um, the body is a remarkable uh, remarkable organism, and it can take care of uh, lots of things. Um, I think that uh, somewhere, some, something in the neighborhood of 100 ounces a day, I think it does well with. Uh, you know, Some people wouldn't do as well with that if they had some, some kidney issues or maybe blood pressure issues or maybe if they were older, things of that type. But in general, more people are harmed by lack of water than they are harmed by too much water. I personally... Try to drink uh, 84 ounces of water a day. I have these little thing I drink, so I just do it whether I'm thirsty or not, because I find that uh, a lot of times I'm really not thirsty, uh, but yet I really should be. I mean, the other thing you can do is you know, check your urine. Your urine output should be fairly clear, or at least light colored. Shouldn't have a lot of odor to it, that sort of thing. So that would be another thing to look at, uh, because your urine should be fairly dilute. I've, I've just had a number of friends who've had kidney stones. And that's one thing that they tell them: you you, you need to drink more water. Uh, so I've said, well, I really don't want to have a kidney stone, so I'm going to just drink more water. So I, that's what I do. But uh, I'm not, I don't consider that excessive. But I guess I am drinking those 64 ounces, but I don't carry the bottle around. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, your body is capable of dealing with that and, uh, just, uh, that's more of an acute thing. If you drink a ton of it at once, you know, it might drop, but the body corrects those things very quickly. Yeah. I mean, if the body, if you drink a lot of water, the body's going to urinate it out very quickly. Yeah. Yes. I, you know, I, I know that people make a lot of money off of selling different types of water and I'm not an expert on it, but I think that in general water is water. Uh, H2O, uh, some of it tastes differently, but again, that, what I'm saying is heresy to other people, you know they, so I, I would just say you know to each their own. I don't think it's it, I, don't, I don't think those types of waters hurt anything at all. And some people claim that they may really do a lot for you in terms of your health. Uh, I really don't know that much about it. I think that the claims that are made, though, again, as I was getting back to, these are not things that you really can substantiate in studies. Um, more anecdotal things. So, And they're expensive, and you, know, you have to make special things. I like to just go over and push a button, there's the water, and drink it. Pretty simple guy. So it's too complicated for me. <laughs> well, you've all been very patient. Uh, if you have other questions, uh, if you don't want to stick around, but you can always email me, plastic, like the substance, G-E-O,
1: plastic, G-O, at gmail.com. Thank you.